Well, let's get going. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We have been, we've been taking this series of the new man. So let me just recap this briefly. We need to understand what it is that I'm talking about. In the Bible, it says that if you are born again, you become a new man, a new creation in God. That's where we're created in the image of God. It's no longer like God is just taking this old thing that you were and cleaning it up a bit. That thing died. Now you become new. That's key. Because our past is literally just that. It's our past. It no longer matters because in the eyes of God, it has been washed away. It died with Christ on the cross, and that new man was resurrected with him when he was resurrected. That's important. We have to get that. We've talked about different caveats in here of of where we go. And ultimately, what we're looking at is the authority that we have as that new man. Because remember what the Bible says, that the body of Christ is the church. That would be us, the ecclesia, you, me. We're the church. Anybody who is born again is a part of the church. Now, that doesn't mean anybody who attends church is a part of the church, okay? That also doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't attend church, that they're not a part of the church. I want to make that clear. Going to church does not make you a part of the body of Christ. No more than sitting in your garage makes you a car, all right? It is part of being born again, giving your life to Christ, putting your faith, hope, and trust in Him. And that's how the Bible says it. So, with that comes authority. It says in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, and He is the head, and who is His body? The church. We are. Which means what? We are seated there with Him. We have authority on this earth, but what do we have authority over? It is not people. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. Now I, Paul, Myself in pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with, the, with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some you, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now let's talk about that because that's language we don't use. Talking about walking according to the flesh would be the rules of this world. What we naturally want to do. When one becomes a born-again believer, it's not a matter of convenience because the, these limitations put on by God isn't always what we want to do. Go read Romans 7 and watch Paul struggle with this where he says, these are the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. So we don't walk according to the flesh, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. War, battle, think about that. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of this world, but they are mighty in God and they are for pulling down strongholds. They are casting down arguments at every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Everything against the knowledge of, Christ, of, knowledge of God, right? And we take every thought captive by Christ in the obedience of Christ. How many thoughts? It's all of them. Your good thoughts and your bad thoughts should be a reflection of Christ. So with that, I gave you guys these four questions that every believer should be able to answer. The first one being, who is God? Now that seems kind of like a a trivial thing to say, well, God is God, that's who he is. But we should be able to go through the Bible and pick out who God is. Because you know what? There are a lot of gods in this world, but there is only one true God. He is the Lord of Lords, right? So he is the God in whom we worship. Number two is who am I in relationship to him? In other words, who does he say that I am? That's important. 
because now it gives our positioning inside of that kingdom. We have to know who we are in relationship with him. And what does he call us? I no longer call you servant. I call you friend. You are a child of God if you're a born-again believer. The third thing is how do I worship him? That's important. We think of worship, what do we think of? Music, right? We'll go into a church service, whether it be here or someone else, and if they play songs we like, we'll be like, wasn't that worship good? And if they pick songs we don't like so much, we're like, eh, wasn't on point today. What does that have to do with what worship is? We live our lives as a living sacrifice before Him, holy and pleasing and acceptable before God. That's worship. The fourth one is who is my enemy, and this is what we're focused on. Who is our enemy? It's not people. It's not. It's so easy to get caught up in that because we run into this world and we run into people that get on our nerves, right? So if you're a football fan, you have a team who is your enemy, right? Right? Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, if you're in Missouri, it's simply out of jealousy is all it is. But, amen, there you go. Because the little brother always wants to be like the big brother, right? And where's the big brother in this case? Lincoln, Nebraska, baby. Come on now. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but as an example, Oklahoma and Texas, right? Right? I mean, you know, God bless Texas. But it's a rivalry. They don't like one another. Okay, but what do you have? You got Oklahoma State that just trying to crawl up there's like, can I have like a cookie, big brother? Can the little crumbs like Oklahoma's like, we don't need another national championship. Go ahead, OSU, we'll let you run at that one. And what do they do? They screw it up because they're the little brothers. That's what little brothers do. Ohio State and Michigan. I'm originally from Detroit, so my family are all diehard Michigan Wolverines fans. They don't just dislike Ohio State. They hate it. Like, if Urban Meyer was on fire, they'd bring cans of gasoline. I mean, they just don't like him. But I got news for y'all. Our enemy is not these people. I know, it's crazy, right? We don't battle according to the flesh. We war in the spiritual places. What we've got to understand is that these people, i.e. Ohio State fans, are being influenced by the devil going to be a good day. Tell me six o'clock next time. Come on now. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a good day. I can feel it. So here's the thing is we got to understand this. We got to understand where we are because if we're reigning in, a, in an authority, then we have to know what that authority is. There's a cop, when they, when they graduate from, from police academy, they know the laws and they know what the authority is that they have and what the authority is that they do not have. And they don't cross those bounds. Because what happens if they do? They can't bring a conviction because whatever evidence was acquired without following the terms of the law is no longer admissible. Okay, there's a lot of that. Janet was talking about this morning. She guys, she's uh, got a Bible study, 8.45 every Sunday. There's donuts, and Stan Griffin is there, so just come hang out with him. That's what you want to do. But it, she's talking about these, that these young men see visions, these old men dream dreams, and talking about the things of the Spirit. If you don't know that's possible, you'll never seek that out. Right? So we have to know who we are in Christ, and we have to know who our enemy is so that we can do battle the way that God tells us to do battle. Amen? You all with me? Okay, now, here's the thing, and I talked about this last week. We have to stick to the Word. 
what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we go through this is we're going to kick over some sacred cows. But we've got to do what Acts 17.11 tells us. Do I have that up there? I may not. I do. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So what is that telling you? That's telling you not to take my word for it. That's telling you that whatever I say, you go and line it up with scriptures to see if it is actually true. Because my opinion is just that. It's my opinion. But I try to bring you the word. And that's what I'm trying to do is debunk some of the nonsense that's out there in the spiritual world today. And all we look at is what the word of God says. So when we think of spiritual warfare, I showed you this image last week. We'll look at it again. This is often what we think of, right? You've got your European Jesus with his very nicely trimmed beard. Right? His flowing locks. Remember, Isaiah said he was kind of ugly, so that's probably a good looking dude. And then you got your devil. He's got the pointed ears, the horn, the 666 on his shoulder, and those two are arm wrestling, and it's in a battle of good and evil. Does that image line up with Scripture? Not even. Why? He's already been defeated. He's already been defeated. There's no arm wrestling going on. That's been done. Well, more than arm wrestling. But this is what we think about. And so in that, we've got to understand that one, we're, who our enemy is, that we are lining up against a defeated foe, okay? So in that, when we look at this and we think about this, we have to answer all sorts of different questions, one of which is, what is his name? Remember, we talked about that last week. What you'll notice is that the majority of things that we call Satan, his proper name, are simply description, Lucifer being light bearer, Satan being the adversary, Right? I mean, those are descriptions of who he is, but not necessarily proper names. doesn't matter. You can call him whatever you want. God calls him defeated, and that's really all that matters. So when we look at this, we have to understand what the Word says about him. So we're going to look at this today. We saw what his name was. More than likely is this Beelzebub that is talked about in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. It was a Philistine god. But now is what does he look like? Fair question, right? Because this is a lot of time what we think. That picture was one, but how about this one? Think of something like this, right? Red dude, horns, pointed ears, running around in his underpants with the pointy tail out the back and a red pitchfork. Where did we get this idea? That was, that was a few years ago. That was a few years ago. That's when I was, I was in Lincoln that day. I was going to have a, a heart-to-heart with the administration and say, we need a new coach. But anyway, so, but this is what we think of. We think of some image like this in our mind. Why do we think this? Where do we get it? You know where it comes from a lot of times? Movies, books. You know where else it comes from? Church. How many of you guys ever walk through a children's church room and you see something, maybe not necessarily the devil, but some sort of thing up there that certainly has nothing to do with how these images look like? I mean, why do we care what he looks like? Well, we kind of sort of don't, but at the same time, we need to just stick to the Word. We need to see what the Word says, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you guys a story, and this is kind of weird. It's a little freaky, and I've told some of you guys this before. But when I was a kid, I remember, I don't remember if it was children's church or not. I'm going to say probably not because 
my former children's church teacher is sitting back there, and she's above this. Now, she rocked the flannel graph thing, if you guys remember those things. But, but somewhere I've seen this picture of the devil with the red horns, and that's what he looked like in my mind. And so one night I'm having a dream, and in the house that I grew up in, we had, it was a two-story house, and you had to go up like three stairs. You took a left. You go up about, I don't know, 20 stairs, whatever it was. It felt like a million and then you had to turn another left, and you go about five or six, and then you're in the upstairs. If you turned left, you would go to the attic. If you went exactly straight from that stairwell, you walk into my bedroom. And if you hung a right, the other bedrooms and the bathrooms were down the hall. It was a real big house. And um, I was chasing my brother up the stairs in this dream. And as I turned the corner, he turned the corner to go off to his bedroom. I'm chasing him. Something reached out from under my bed and grabbed me. And drug me under there, and it was this image of the devil. Okay? And you know what he said to me? Why do you believe in God? And then I woke up. And you know what I did next? I managed to get my parents' bedroom without touching the floor. (laughs) Because I know where he was. And I knew where I wasn't going to be. Okay? But here it was. Here's this, this image and things like that. And it's messing with my head. I mean, I was freaked out. I didn't know any better. So what does he look like? Well, let's look at this. We're going to look at Scripture today. Ezekiel chapter 28 is where we're going to start at. We're going to start at verse 11. Now, you'll notice over the next couple of weeks, we're going to hang out a lot in Ezekiel and Isaiah because it gives us a lot of information about it. Ezekiel 28 verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, who is the word of the Lord? It's Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, you will notice over the next few weeks as we go through this, they'll talk about the prince and the king. And many times the king is the power behind him, and you'll see why. Because this is at a time during the Babylonian captivity that this is going on, and you'll see why here in a minute. So, son of man, take up a lamentation for the the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So how do we know this isn't some king sitting in Tyre? Because he'd be like a thousand years old plus by then. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Here's the key. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So what did he just do? He just described him. He called him the anointed cherub. Now what's a cherub? Cherub's an angel. Okay? Now you notice he didn't mention his horns or his pitchfork. See, the word angel is used in a couple of different ways. A lot of times in the Old Testament, it comes from the Hebrew word melak, M-A-L-A-K. It's one who is dispatched with a message. You'll notice a lot of times when angels go forth to a person, that they are bringing a message with them. It's used 196 times, 111 times as angels, and 98 times as messenger, and four times as ambassadors. In other words, they're representing God in a matter. But another word that we see is the word angelos. You see this a lot in the New Testament, meaning a messenger, envoy, one who is sent, a messenger from God. It's used 179 times as an angel and seven times as a messenger. And what you'll see is that they they will serve those who will inherit salvation. 
which is whom? Us, born-again believers, people who give their lives to Christ. As Jesus said, that you must be born again. And so they serve them. Now, in that, what does that mean? How do they serve them? Well, sometimes it's with messages. But the concept of guardian angels is not unbiblical. It is actually very much biblical, and we'll get into that. But look at this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels, angelos, did he ever say? So remember, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews, and he's building a case for the Messiahship of Jesus. For to, who, uh, to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Who did he say that to? Jesus, right? And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirit and his ministers a flame of fire? But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation aren't they all they may have different roles but their purpose remains the same it is serving those who will inherit salvation and so what you see here is the, the writer of Hebrews giving a bunch of Old Testament examples, saying there is a distinction between Jesus and these angels, these spiritual beings. And a lot of this is just refuting Gnosticism that was going on at that time. And so we see what these guys do. If you look in different parts of Scripture, they give personal guidance. You see that in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. They'll protect from harm. You see that in Daniel chapter 6. The lion's den, right? What did the angel do? He shut the mouths of the lion. Okay? They deliver from the enemy. You see that in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12. You see that a lot. You also will see angels that encourage and strengthen. Look at Genesis chapter 32 verse 1. It says, so Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Manahan. So you see this time and time again. You see angels show up with Paul. Verse, uh, Acts 27, verse 22 says, Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul is on a boat, is about to shipwreck, and he knows that the people are freaking out. Okay, he's sailing away, and he said, listen, the angel of the God whom I serve, making a distinction of the gods that they serve, and he's saying, listen, we're all going to be okay, stay on the boat. You see, they provided food for Elijah in 1 Kings 19. They guide us in Genesis 19. They encourage us in Judges 6. They deliver us in Acts 12. They enlighten us in Matthew 2. They empower us in Luke 22. And they pro protect us in Psalm 91. I mean, we see this a lot. Psalm 91, verse 11 says, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. 
This is angels, kind of broad picture of who they are and what they do. But there was a distinction made in what we read in Ezekiel. He was a cherub, an anointed cherub. And so what we have here is you'll see in several different places the description of what a cherub. Now, I'll say this, and I'll talk about this more later. There's, sometimes it'll say cherub, or it'll say cherubim, and I will explain the difference here in a little bit. But look at Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of man, you see what happens. Verse 24, so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east side of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? Cherub is singular. When you add the I-M ending in Hebrew, it makes it plural. It's like us adding an S. So that's what's going on. There's multiple. So they were guarding the way to the tree of life. Who else were they keeping away from that? Satan, the adversary. We see that they, in, in Exodus chapter 25, they adorned the mercy seat. And they shall make an ark, verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings of the side of the ark, and the ark may be carried by them. The poles should be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them of the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, and I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, above everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now I think I've got a picture of this, don't I? Do I have a picture of that? I do. This is what the ark of the covenant kind of looked like. This is an artist's rendition. Now they used acacia wood because it was prevalent, but they covered it in gold, but it's two pieces. You've got the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box. The poles were made to carry it. The Levites had to carry it, and they could not touch it. And then you have the mercy seat, which is the thing on top. And what you'll see there are two cherubs with their wings covering because they are uh, around the throne of God, which is what the mercy seat is. It was inside the tabernacle. It was also inside the temple later on, and that is where that the high priest would on the Day of Atonement, one time a year, enter into there to cleanse everything, and this is where God would meet with them because he says what? I will hover above the mercy seat. This is his throne. Those cherubs are the guardian angels, if you will, the protectors of that. They are there for a purpose. So you have cherubs. Now, it gives them a description of having different wings and things like that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you also see in other parts about seraphim. So seraph, cherub, seraphim, same thing, where these are a little bit different. So all of these things are used for a purpose. They guarded the way to the tree of life. They guard the ark in Solomon's temple. They engage in the adoration of God in connection with the mercy seat and the tabernacle. We just read about that. They support the Lord's throne. You'll see that in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and, and 2 Kings and all through Psalms. They form the chariot of God. 
You'll see that in different parts as well. So what do they look like? Because that's ultimately what we're getting at. Because he called him an anointed cherub. So we need to know this. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, I know this is a lot of scripture, just bear with me. Now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives of the river Shebar, that the heavens were opened up, and I saw visions of God. So here's Ezekiel. They're in captivity. The Babylonians have come and taken them captive, and he sees a vision of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Who's the word of the Lord? It's Jesus, the son of Buzah, and the land of the Chaldeans by the river Shebar. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and raiding out of its mist like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also, from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of man were under the wings of their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each one of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings on each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance now like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth besides each living creature with its four faces. Now this is weird, guys, but we're getting a description of these cherubs. Jump to verse 22. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, firmament their wings spread out straight, one toward one, uh, another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still... They let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. Now, it doesn't specifically say cherub here, but if you piece a whole bunch of stuff together for, and for the sake of time, you just take my word for it, that this is a description of a cherub. And what did Ezekiel say? Who was the anointed cherub? It was this Lucifer, this Satan, this adversary, right? So does he look anything like what we had seen in those pictures? Absolutely not. We get these ideas from movies. We get these ideas from books. The biggest influence in our modern day theology about Satan and hell and all that other stuff does not come from the Bible. It originated out of a book called Dante's Inferno, written several hundred years ago. And it was from there that a lot of churches have picked up their doctrine and have run with it. But the description here is a pretty weird looking creature, right? Four faces, bunch of wings, got hooves for feet, okay, kind of weird. But let's jump into Ezekiel 10, because we're just going to kind of hang there in Ezekiel for a little bit. It says, and I looked, and there in the firmament, that was above the head of the cherubim, so here we see them, 
There appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went as I watched. Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple, and when the man went in, the cloud filled with the inner court, filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord went up from there. From the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the glory of God. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of the Almighty God when he speaks. Now, again, remember, there's the inner court and the outer court of the temple. The outer court was kind of where everybody would hang out, but the inner court was where everything was taking place. And so they're in the inner court, but it's heard in the outer court, and this was no small building. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels from uh, among the cherubim, and that he went and stood beside the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed with linen, and took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel... Uh, by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have a color of, barrel, of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike. As it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they want, went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. So remember, we ta- it talked about that before. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Shebar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when... And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Shebar, as I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Shebar, their and their persons, they each went straight forward. That was a mouthful. Amen. Brother. <laughs> Amen. But you guys see what I'm saying? Yes. You see, we've got this misconception about what Satan looks like. But what was he? He was a cherub. We have these artist renditions of these different angels and things like that. In fact, I got some pictures up here, I think. This is what we see. We've got fat little babies. Those are called cherubs. Does that picture match the description we just read? No, not even close. But we've got these fat little baby angels. You see them shooting the bow and arrow there. You know, I mean, Cupid, I suppose. That's important, right? I know some of y'all wish it was as easy as shooting an arrow at a girl to make her like you, but, you know, whatever. And so we've got these descriptions, but that's not what it is. These creatures were huge. 
you've got this one here. We see these things all at Christmas time. Do you realize how unbiblical this is? You know, number one, there's never a description of an angel as a woman. Do you know, number two, you see the halo? You won't find that in the Bible. There's no such thing. No such thing. This is what we, we picture. In fact, we've got some light switches in here, then rooms that we're not using, or they'd come off, but that match that. I'd take them down if we were using the room, because we want to think biblically, right? So if we were to get an image of what Satan looked like, it probably looked a lot more like this. I think we've got another image here. Four wings, calves' feet. The one on the left would be the cherubim. The one on the right with six wings would be the seraphim. Are there more than that? Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure there are. I mean, there's different descriptions, but I mean, what are these things? You see, we've got to understand what Lucifer, what Satan looks like. It's not red horns, anything like that. He said he masquerades as an angel of light. He's not ugly. He probably looks like that. That's weird. Okay? Are those just descriptors, or is that exactly what he saw? I don't know. I've never seen him. Frankly, don't care to. But these are no small things. They were fierce creatures that we are talking about here. Fierce creatures, and they had a purpose. So you had cherub, but he was called the anointed cherub. We're going to get into that. Because... He, Satan, being the head, when it calls him the anointed cherub. He's the head of something. And Ezekiel gives us a description, and I think we can put the pieces together. So here's the thing we need to understand about angels. They were created by God for a purpose, right? As were you, as was I. Everything that God created has a purpose. These things are big, but God is bigger. See, we don't have to fear Satan because he is defeated foe, and we'll talk about that more. But what I want to show you is, number one, what do we call him, right? We need to think biblically in that. Number two, what does he look like? It's not what you had in your mind. Number three is, what was his role? Number four is, why did he even fall in the first place? And it tells us that. And number six is, when did he fall? And I believe the Bible tells us that very clearly as well. And I'm going to show you guys all of this from Scripture. Again, Acts 17.11. I know this is probably different than anything that you, uh, that you maybe heard before. I also know that this is not the most inspirational of, of sermons maybe you've ever heard. You're not going to walk out of here and like, man, I'm ready to light the world on fire for Jesus, right? But we've got to think biblical. Sometimes we've got to undo things to get them right. Because we want to be as accurate to the Word as, as we can be. And we've got to do what Acts 17.11 says. We've got to test everything and keep those things which the Word agrees with. Amen? Amen. 